Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're reading through the Aubrey Matron novels of our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien. Ian, we had just started Chapter 4 last time. Catch us up to where we are. With great pleasure. Hi, this is Ian from the future. As you're going to notice, we had some problems with the audio in my side of the show this week. I'm sorry for that. It's entirely my fault. We hope you can still enjoy the show and we'll be back to normal audio quality next week. Chapter four, such a rich chapter that we covered chapter three plus some of chapter four already last week. Um, Sir Joseph Blaine, we learned last time, had been waiting in Lisbon and had met up with Stephen and changed Jack and Stephen's mission. In, in order to convince the Spanish that the surprise is actually really not on a secret South American mission, everything has changed. Jack is now going to be reinstated. Hooray! He's going to be given command of the Diane, the ship that he cut out at the end of the previous book, so that he and Stephen can take an envoy to the South China Sea to negotiate a treaty against the French, and in particular in the face of enemy Ledwood. Now, meanwhile, Jack, Stephen, and Sir Joseph had gone back to England. Meanwhile, the surprise had continued as, as, as a privateer, an ostentatious privateer under the command of Tom Pullings. As we ended the episode, Jack and Stephen had arrived in Portsmouth, thinking to spend a day there before heading off to see their wives, only to run into Diana and Sophie right there. Ambushed they were, ambushed. So, Mike, this time... Jack's working his way around London. He's hoping to be reinstated. We all we all have our fingers crossed here. He's beginning to plan this mission to the Far East with Stephen, with Sir Joseph, and with the envoy, Mr. Fox. We're going to explore Iris mythology. We're going to learn some more about the character of Mr. Fox and the plans for the mission to Pulo Provan. Plus, there's some time at home at Ashgrove with the family while Jack waits to take command of the Diane. Plenty to work on here, Mike. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is this is great. I think you and I have both been talking about we're feeling like things are starting to take off a little bit here. We've had this right. massive yeah. exposition. And finally, well, as the girls had kind of ambushed the guys at the where we left off in Chapter 4, Sophie had just said that, you know, she didn't want to lose a minute with her man and, and with Stephen as well. And it's a good thing, too, because they were expecting that they'd be home until Tuesday when they had to go into London. But on Sunday, Jack gets a note from the Port Admiral requiring Captain Aubrey to Ooh. wait upon the First Lord in Arlington Street. So let's emphasize Captain. I think even in the text, it's emphasized for us. It's like, okay, this is going to be official. And he's supposed to be there at 5.30 the next day. Jack is delighted that he's going to be meeting the First Lord at the First Lord's private residence rather than at the Admiralty. He was worried because he was thinking, well, wait a minute, I haven't actually been officially promoted. So if I show up at the Admiralty in the, you know, in my dress uniform, that's presumptuous. Yeah. But if I'm actually a captain and I walk in in civilian clothes, oh my gosh, that's, you know, that's completely uh, you know, not according to Hoyle. So he knows that by going to the private residence, he can comfortably dress in his civilian clothes and take his uniform along for any follow-on Admiralty meeting. So 
he's like, Phew. but then he thinks, wait, my uniform. I oh, gosh, I haven't had my uniform on in several years here. And Sophie <laughs> reports that, yep, yep, yep. They've been all over that. And it's very well preserved, though the epaulets are a little bit tarnished. And because Jack's lost some weight, it's likely to be a little too big. Now, O'Brien doesn't want us to get, you know, any kind of emaciated picture of Jack in our mind. So he, he reminds us that he's still big enough that when he jumps in the post chase the next day, it heals well over. So he's, our Jack is still, you know, Russell Crowe sized here, although perhaps not quite as big here. Well, thankfully, Mrs. Williams and Killick have been working for days now to get rid of the smell of mothballs, and Jack is ready to go to London. Oh, fantastic. And Mike, we've had this before, big moments in the plot preceded by a ride in a coach. I mean, it's, it's not that uncommon for Regency times, but I'm, I'm getting good feelings based on previous experiences of Jack riding in coaches. They have it. They make pretty good time. They have a good ride to London. It's a beautiful day. They have fresh horses that are in great shape. O'Brien gives us this nice callback to the reverse of the medal where Stephen's listening to the sounds of the wildlife and the bird calls. He hears, as the text says, no less than three separate cuckoos at once. And he remembers the, the pain that it once caused him to hear the call of the cuckoo and then immediately sees a wryneck. And Mike, this is a, another interesting callback, right? So a wryneck is sometimes called a cuckoo's mate. It's there like a bird like a woodpecker with a 180 degree movement in its neck. And O'Brien points out that this is a bird often much more heard than seen. And Mike, I think it was in reverse of the medal, right? Stephen's out having his walk to Jack's feeling of imminent miracle. And the cuckoo's cry reminds him of the word cuckold, meaning someone whose wife has committed adultery. And that broke the spell. Now, this is a long time ago in terms of what's been going on in Stephen's relationship, but it's a real trigger for him. Soon after, Nathaniel Martin comments on the cuckoos and Stephen tries to get him to leave the cricket match to find a Rhinex. That was what was going on back in reverse of the medal. The, all this business at the cricket match with the Rhinex, with the cuckold reference, was a portent of gloom and maybe a sign of better things to come. So maybe for us, this is going to be the reverse of the reverse, right? Maybe. maybe right, maybe. right. Let's hope. Ah. <sighs> And uh, then we have a, um, a hoopo callback to the scene right after Stephen and Jack's first cup of furiously whipped chocolate together in Master and Commander. Do you remember it, Mike? He read, um, Stephen said, uh, I pointed it out to Jack with the usual result. There is a Rhineck. Where? Oh, on the young elm tree. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> so, Mike, this very, very O'Brien-ish. We've got references to wildlife, the birds in particular, and we're calling right back to particular situations that I think we're meant to call to mind here. As a little point of comparison. Yeah. If only Jack had said, we're away, then we would know. It was absolutely yeah, exactly. that scene. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's great. I, I remember Rachel McMillan's kind of a little bit of a, a fan rewrite of that uh, kind of a woman explaining the scene for us or, or explaining <laughs> the scene to women. So it was uh, pretty funny on, on one of the Facebook uh, Aubrey Matron or Patrick O'Brien appreciation groups years back here. I think maybe on our webpage. Anyway. Jack is thrilled to be headed in, but it's interesting, as O'Brien describes it, the closer they get to London, the uneasier Jack gets. You know, mm -hmm. there's so much at stake here. And and he's starting to wonder, mm, wait a minute, you know, this is it's not done till it's done. He maybe he's read O'Brien before too. Yeah. <laughs> at the at the grapes, 
Mrs. Broad, knowing, you know, Kelly had gone down the day before, let him know that they were coming. And she's got this wonderful dinner. But Jack, who's going through all these in his mind, you know, what may be unreasonable conditions for his reinstatement. Remember that, you know, earlier that, you know, they had said, oh, we could do this, but you have to, you know, be culpable or something. No, he's thinking about all that or the fact that maybe he doesn't get reinstated at all. He's just kind Mm -hmm. of eating mechanically. And and Mrs. Broad would kind of go out of the dining room. And Mrs. Broad is telling Lucy that she thinks the captain must be dueling somebody in the morning. You know, she's looking at, at how Jack looks. And Lucy says, yeah, she's never seen any man, much less Jack, this grim sitting there. Wow. And a little reminder for us as well that we can't take it for granted that it's all going to be a smooth ride from here on here. Um, one of the bits of good news that the astute reader might have spotted is that in recent books, we've had the other party, the other political party in command of the ministry. And now we're back with Jack and Stephen's buddies and Lord Melville related, of course, to Jack's good buddy, Henry Dundas. Lord Melville is first Lord. Lord Melville greets Jack and we get straight into it, Mike. Melville wants to be the first to congratulate him. Yay! Yes. And hands over to Jack a copy of the article that's currently being printed in the Gazette announcing Jack's reinstatement. And this is just great. This is exactly what Jack had wanted. He's reinstated with his former rank, with his former seniority restored. He's appointed to the 32-gun frigate Diane. And that's not too shabby. Nice little frigate posting Mm -hmm. there. He gives Jack a piece of paper that he describes as his appointment, but he says the orders won't come yet. They're coming from the Admiralty. And at this... Jack is beyond happy. Happiness, he says, is too slight a word. And he even realizes that he's crushing this document, this appointment. So he very discreetly kind of smooths it out and puts it back in his pocket, neatly folded. I'm pretty sure he's going to want to take it out several times in the coming hours and read it again. This is a really nice scene. Melville's very happy for Jack. He's really sorry that it had taken so long. And he's delighted that the two of them, Jack and Stephen, are going on the mission with the envoy, Mr. Fox. So Melville wishes Jack and Stephen could bring back Ledward and Ray and their French frigate, the Cornelie. But, he says, any harm to them would imperil future relations with the Sultanate. So they're on shaky diplomatic ground. They're not completely free in what they can do. It's not take, burn, sink or destroy. Jack can pick anyone, says Melville, that he wants to take with him on the mission, provided that they're close by. And, and can leave very quickly. They need to get on the march soon because they want to ensure that the French have not had time to secure a treaty before this English party arrives. Melville says he's made an appointment with Admiral Satterley, who I don't think we've met before, Mike. Admiral Satterley at the Admiralty to finalize details. He hopes that Admiral Martin, who I think is the Port Admiral in Portsmouth, will be able to help Jack find some hands to complete the Diane's compliment. Furthermore, he's really glad that there's going to be this dinner coming up between Jack and Stephen and Sir Joseph at Black's, Jack's London Club, to discuss the mission. And Melville invites Jack to stay over and dine with him and to dine with Hennage. He says that that's all his first lord business, his uh, his official naval business. I'm like, then we get a little hint of the flip side of this. Remember, we got to this point partly with the help of Jack being elected slash shooed in as as the member for this pocket borough Millport. So Melville very politely says, well, there's this other thing that I need to ask you now. Speaking as an ordinary mortal, I would take it very kindly, he says. 
Um, if Jack were to attend Parliament on Wednesday to hear Melville's cousin propose a bill to win some land from the sea and hoping, hoping very politely, without any apparent obligation, that Jack was going to support the bill. I'm like, really, really great moment. On the one hand, Jack benefits from being part of the establishment now, being a member of Parliament, but there is no such thing as a free lunch. That's and right. he's going to have to get used to doing the occasional favour. Oh, times don't change, eh? Yeah, it's too true. Jack is back with Stephen. He's describing how handsomely the First Lord has done it. He says, no humming and whoring, no barking about the wrong bush, no goddamn morality. Couldn't, couldn't resist the no barking around the wrong bush. Another great Aubreyism. And, and Jack tells Stephen about the dinner. And, and he says, you know, I could have ate a hippopotamus in my relief. Uh, he says that Hennage had truly affecting behavior. He lets Stephen know that Hennage, by the way, is going to stop by to see Stephen because Stephen and Hennage are close friends as well. And he's thinking and, and talking to Stephen about how pleased Sophie is going to be. And then after all of this wonderful stuff, it kind of, as you alluded to, you know, there's the text says, after a hesitant pause, Jack says, I do rather wish Melville had not asked me for a vote, not yeah. just at that time. You know, don't don't make it so quid pro quoish, you know, right? You know, I would have been delighted to, he said. But I, I love Stephen's answer, and, and this is still true today. Stephen says, a professional defamation. I suppose politics and delicacy can rarely go together. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't know if uh, Stephen was thinking forward to reading words on social media about politics today, but I, I suppose it was actually pretty inflammatory even then. Yeah, politics and delicacy not going together very well. Stephen is is looking at the appointment letter that Jack has given him here, and he goes, oh, my goodness, you know, this is May 15th. And Stephen says, a wonderfully auspicious date. That's the date Noah's granddaughter, Kassir, came to Ireland with 50 maidens and three men, the first person that ever sat foot on an Irish strand. Jack's takeaway, which I love, is, you astonish me, Stephen. I'm amazed. So the Irish are really Jews. (laughs) (laughs) Out of of all that, Stephen says, no, 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 no. You know, they they all died 40 days later in Noah's flood, but the Irish Christians arrived 300 years later with Partholon. So it's fascinating. Now, I, I am absolutely not knowledgeable, sadly, about Irish myth. But it is beautiful. I've read a bunch of tales to sort of get what Stephen is talking about here. Right. And, and it's fabulous. There's a book, all of our listeners in Ireland and all of our Irish listeners around the world, please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the book, Laura Gowala Aaron. I'll give it a shot there. Literally, the book of the taking of Ireland or the anglicized, what you know, is often in English referred to as the book of invasion. This is a book that was first written in the 11th century, and and it was accepted really as kind of written history until the 19th century. And and in the 19th century, they realized, or or at least the take on is, is this is really an attempt to kind of synthesize some mythology, some tales, some Irish prehistory, and mix with some Christian or some some might say pseudo-Christian influences to kind of write the great backstory of of Ireland uh, and also 
to kind of perhaps co-opt some early Irish mythology with Christian history to kind of give it a Christian footing. Hence this idea that this woman who some people see as kind of, you know, one of the first great wonderful of Ireland's goddesses is is actually Noah's granddaughter from a Noah son who we never actually find in the Bible, but find in some apocryphal tales later. But in any event, you know, we, we get this great thing that, you know, that this idea that the first people to arrive in Ireland are led by Caser, the daughter of Bith, uh, who is a son of Noah, as I said. And they have been warned, and in different tales, you know, their, their warning comes from different people to escape to the western edge of the world. In some tales, one of the reasons that they're choosing Ireland to head for is because it has been unpopulated, so it has no sin, so it won't be affected by the flood. The flood's only there to wipe out sin. So I thought that was a fascinating thing. They set out in three ships, but it's a, a perilous journey. Two are lost at sea, and when they land in Ireland 40 days before the flood, as, as Stephen had said, you know, there's only Kassar, 49 other women, and three men. And, and it's kind of fascinating, this idea of, so, so for some people, you know, this absolutely feeds the goddess legends and uh, uh, mythology. For other people, uh, it's it's a great kind of a little tongue in cheek because the the men don't hold up very well. No. <laughs> all, all, all being, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, worn out trying to be three men um, among all these women. And one of these, you you might remember us talking, you know, in an earlier episode about the salmon of knowledge. Yeah. One of these men appears to be closely related, and in some tales, actually ends up becoming the salmon of knowledge. Uh, also, in addition to becoming a salmon, becomes a, an eagle and a hawk and lives for 5,500 years after the flood, becomes a man again so he can tell us this history so we can huh. break this down. Now, in some of the tales, the three women are kind of Ireland's first three goddesses. The names are similar but a bit different here. Uh, and in some of the tales, biblically, we get Noah kind of populating the world after the flood. In some of these tales, the women are named such that you get ancestors of the Britons, ancestors of Spanish, Germans, Goths, um, Thracians. Uh, so uh, it's, it's you know, they, they become kind of, they create a microcosm of the world's population in Ireland. So anyway, fabulous history, great myth. Perhaps we can put some social media links out there from Ireland that will give you correct pronunciations and, uh, you know, maybe even a point to some of the goddess literature as well. Fabulous, fascinating, and read in a beautiful, many beautiful accents. Absolutely. And I, I love this as well, because one of the many shortcomings of the English is that we didn't have the imagination to come up with a myth that links kind of nation creation and prehistory and divinity and the Bible. You know, we have King Arthur, you know, and he got turned into a Monty Python movie. So that's what, that's what we need to know about King Arthur. Well, as did the Bible at one point as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the life of Brian. So really, really great reference and fantastic for us to dig into. Um, nice moment for Stephen to flex his, uh, his Irish scholarship here as well. Jack then turns to Stephen and says, well, how about your day? How's it been going for you? And he describes a much less happy day. He's had a frustrating day with his bankers. And he commends to, to Jack 
his own, Stephen's own ability to deal with him in a forthright naval way. He says, I use some very warm expressions, such as the nautical lobcock and bugger, to get them to comply with his repeated requests. Jack again suggests that Stephen should transfer his money to Smith, the banker who's the brother of the captain that we met in chapter one of this book. Jack says he's going to stay with whores, the they of the famous pun, since they had treated him so well, even when he had no money. And Stephen says, yeah, okay, I'm going to write to my bankers as soon as the gold that I've requested is aboard the Diane, and I'm going to make this whole transfer. He's going to have a lawyer to review the request and to draft it so that everything's watertight and his existing bankers have got no choice to be slow, no chance to do anything but carry out his wishes. And Mike, this is one of the things that's being repeated consistently all the way through these first four chapters of the book. I think it's fair to say that we're meant to notice that this is on Stephen's mind, uh, that this might foretell something that's going to be important later in the plot. Right. I don't know what... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about a motif that's coming up again and again and again. This this is it here. Yeah. And, and if there's any other family of motifs here, it's we're calling back to pretty much every symbol and moment uh, and even location that was important to us in Master and Commander, and I think also in HMS Surprise, because we have epaulets. Remember Jack wetting the swab at the beginning of Master and Commander? Jack says, hey, Killick, you're going to go out and buy me some new epaulets. These ones are tarnished. I need them and a coach waiting for me, 8.30 a.m. sharp. And Killick is really genuinely, sincerely delighted on a personal level that Jack has been reinstated. And he even very awkwardly and charmingly does a little man-to-man thing. The text says, he held his hand out and said, if I may make so bold, give you joy, sir. Give you joy with all my heart. But I knew it would be. I said so all along. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Killick, Killick answering for all of us there. Now, set that thought to one side for a minute. Meanwhile, Stephen asks Jack to dine with him and with Sir Joseph and Mr. Fox at Black's at half. What? Stephen says half five, meaning in your dialect, he says, half past four. He's pointing out that in Irish usage of the English language, when you say half five, you mean half before five. Jack gladly accepts, and we get this little mention that he's glad that Black's, this this fairly exclusive, fairly establishment club on St. James's Street there, has kept him on as a member, even though he felt like he was kind of in, in disgrace. Jack had vowed not to go back onto the club property until he was reinstated but with the Gazette coming out and with the epaulets and one thing and another, it's going to be the perfect time to go back. So, speaking of the epaulets, after midnight, Killick is brought back to the grapes on a shutter. I, I don't know why it is that on, on a shutter is how you get brought back. You know, he wasn't brought back in a wheelbarrow. You know, he wasn't brought back on somebody's shoulders. He was brought back on a shutter, which suggests he's completely inert. Right? And the text says he's drunk even by strict naval standards, being incapable of speech or movement, however slight. And it takes a real sailor man to know how to tie one on to that extent. He's been in a fight. He's been partially stripped naked. He's got no money. The epaulets are gone. Jack's money is gone. No sign of life, really. No light at all in the eyes of Killick. Um, He's just going to have to sleep it off. Jack's got a problem, though, because he has to start early the next morning he has to make this emergency dawn ra- rush to a supplier across town to get him to open the shop and make up these epaulets in time for the appointment. So still, Mike, still a bit of jeopardy there for our Jack. Right, right. Well, you know, O'Brien, 
finally puts us out of our misery. Boom, we join Jack and Admiral Satterley at the Admiralty. And so, like you said, he's, he's, he's there. He's got his epaulets. He's in fine uniform. And the Admiral is explaining the situation. Bushel, who's the Diane's present captain, is now being moved to the Norfolk Fencibles. His, his wife has a big estate up there. And the good news is because he's going on shore, he's not going to be able to take many of his followers here. He explains that Diane has a full gun room with capital warrant officers. Now, she's short of experienced master's mates in the midshipman's berth, and she's about 60 to 70 hands short of compliment. You know, we're back in those days with the impressment and everything, and it's it's tough to get enough men for all these ships here. Mm. He explains that the officers have not been with Bushel long enough, as the text says, to feel any jealousy at his suppression. This is you know, <laughs> that Bushel's being suppressed here to give Jack the command. But he gives Jack a list of them in case Jack wants to make any changes. And, and the Admiral adds, and besides, they all know who took the Diane in the first place and has a natural right to her. So it's back to, you know, Jack, you cut out this ship and, you know, good naval officers all know you deserve this ship. So we, we love that. That's excellent. So we've got a ship, we have warrant officers and we have hands. We haven't yet talked about officers. And this is where we get a couple of interesting little moments for Jack to think about here. The first lieutenant is by the name of Fielding. Stick a pin in that. Um, Fielding's been mostly on board line of battleships on blockade, therefore hasn't seen much action. You know, he's been off Toulon or off Brest or somewhere. The second, Lieutenant Elliot, must have a good deal of influence because he'd been made as a lieutenant before he was at his legal age, had almost no sea service as an officer because of a wound. I think this is a little bit of a worry because steady warrant officers are great, but Jack likes fighting, spirited, competent, squared away officers um, in his gunroom. All of the rest of the officers had served in respectable ships. The third lieutenant, Jack spots a little problem here. He says, this is an officer whose father I had a disagreement with. And first of all, Mike, I'm thinking Dixon. I don't, I don't remember anybody being called Dixon. And the Admiral realizes that Dixon's father is Hart, our old friend, earlier Captain, now Admiral Hart. Um, Dixon's name had changed when he'd inherited, so he'd acquired a title. And we get another nice little bit of continuity callback here. Those of us who have just finished rereading Master and Commander, we well remember that Jack had made a cuckold of uh, Captain Hart as he was then back in Port Mahon. So the Admiral says, mm, yeah, okay, that's not that's not a great match. So reach out, he says, reach out to anybody you know, see if any of your young men are available and you can switch them in for this guy, Dixon. Jack also points out, with a little bit of caution, I think, that he usually sails with his own particular friend, Dr. Maturin, as surgeon. And... The Admiral says, well, maybe since, you know, the, the, the surgeon appointment really isn't in my giving, why don't you have Maturin travel as physician to the envoy or his suite or as your personal friend? Because he says, if, as I understand, pay is of little consequence to the gentleman as your guest. So a couple of little answers here. Back in episode 100, Mike, we were wondering whatever happened to Molly Hart? And there's a tiny part of an answer. You know, she had a son, and he, his name became Dixon. And second little callback, Mike, I'd, maybe I was the only one here. I got a little shiver when we heard that the first lieutenant's called Fielding. There was 
a Lieutenant Fielding, albeit one called Charles and not James, who was married to Laura Fielding, who we remember from Treason's Harbour, the subject of intrigues and some presumed adultery. Now, I do a quick text search and I discover that there have been quite a few officers in the canon named Fielding. It doesn't look like this is a mistake. This looks like it's just one of O'Brien's go-to surnames. And there are some genuinely different lieutenants who appear all with this name Fielding. And, And maybe, Mike, this is a sort of subconscious tribute to Henry Fielding, satirical English novelist of the early 18th century, known to be a bit of favorite of O'Brien. So perhaps Fielding is where he goes to. We, we couldn't have had too many English naval lieutenants called Dostoevsky. So Fielding works, I think. <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, and we get another warm and fuzzy moment. You know, they arrive at Black's and uh, Jack gets there first and the porter kind of steps away from all these country gentlemen who were in town for the season to greet Jack. And he just tells him that, that the club, you know, that it just hasn't been the same without him. And he says, he's right glad to see him again. And I always wondered where like right glad came from, you know, cause we'd say right. All, all so many things in, <laughs> in the South. And it's a, apparently a great expression here. Yeah. Well, many of the members also come up and they're all congratulating Jack on his reinstate in different ways. You know, some are saying, you know, quite graciously, they always knew that this was happening, and others are kind of, you know, a little bit more muted, all's well that ends well. Uh, but, you know, the text says, yet still the sense of friendliness and support were extremely grateful. And although by now he, meaning Jack, was pretty well aware that the winning side was most widely applauded when the victory had become evident. Mm-hmm. He was much more moved than he would have supposed. So I'm glad to say that, you know, it, it doesn't matter how they're saying it. Jack's like, yeah, yeah, I'll this take does it. I'll mean take something. It, yeah. I like this. Good. Well, Stephen and Sir Joseph come in and Sir Joseph says, may I give you joy of your gazette or has the tide already risen higher than you can bear? And, and I love Jack's answer. You are very good, Sir Joseph. Many, many, many thanks. No, the tide cannot rise too high for me. I find I have a special appetite for the kindness of those I respect. And oh. boy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm loving Jack basking in these moments. I'm loving, you know, this kind of wonderful reminder of the power of kindness and of being people with, you know, being with people when they fall, being with them when they get back up and and how we all glow in the kindness of those, especially those we respect. So, you know, another great human condition insight from Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, I love it. And, it. and it makes me happy to know Jack as a character as well. I think it makes him real. Like, yeah, yes. I, I can take as much of this as you like. Um, I, I'm, I'm noticing here the difference between Jack Aubrey and Horatio Hornblower in the C.S. Forrester books. I, I think that Hornblower wouldn't have been able to allow himself this kind of outright pleasure. He would have found some way to express, you know, modesty and self-effacement verging on pathological self-doubt. He would have found some way to spoil the party for himself. So, bless him. Anyway, Jack, we learn, has come from Westminster, where he'd been watching Captain Dacres take his seat in Parliament before heading immediately for Portsmouth. And while he was there at the House, a number of members had asked Jack, we learn, to take their sons or nephews to sea. And he believes that more are going to ask him the same thing tomorrow. It is astonishing, he said, how eager people are to get rid of their boys. Well, Mike. Not necessarily 100% surprised. Anyway, though perhaps, he goes on, perhaps not really so very astonishing when you consider, yeah, <laughs> right. absolutely. 
Um, what you're going to take my kids away and just they're going to, they're going to get fed and educated and turn come back as respectable people in the profession? Yeah, go for it. Jack has been really very pragmatic about this. He's told all these members that he'll take any boy who's rising 13 or 14 has been at a mathematical school for a year and knows enough to be useful at sea. And Mike, I noticed that those are conditions that are both eminently sensible and practical and also eminently unlikely to be met by any of the people who are tapping Jack for right. a place for their kids here. Right. And and I think, Mike, there, there, there's a real Captain Dakers and, and a Captain Dakers who kind of strides the... The, the British and the American sides of 1812, right? Yeah, there, there was a Dakers, James Richard Dakers, who went by Tom, I think maybe because yeah. his father had the same name. Uh, Tom, Tom Short for James. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. Exactly. Right, right. I was talking about what? He was part of a family of Royal Navy officers, had you know all kinds of relatives, several admirals. Uh, and But he's kind of known for becoming a lifelong friend of the USS Constitution's Captain Isaac Hall. Hall took uh, Dakers prisoner in 1812. And, and I think there was a, a great deal of lifelong mutual affection between them. You know, one of the nice things is Dakers, right before this battle, had some Americans who had been impressed and he sent them below. He didn't want them to get killed by their countrymen. I think Hall, you know, took note of that. Anyways, uh, you know, they continue to be friends. Dakers becomes a vice admiral. But neither, from from what I could find, neither Dakers himself nor any of his naval Dakers family ever became members of Parliament. You know, at least according to the Patrick O'Brien muster. Okay, so we've got we've got a little bit of our own timeline going on here. That's great. Right. So uh, everybody's on a bit of a on a bit of a roll here. Jack is in good spirits. He's got his appointment. He's got his epaulets. Stephen is with him. They're they're back they're back in good spirits at the club, and Mr. Fox comes and joins them for this dinner. And for the first part, we're 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 riding on the crest of a wave here. This is good company, and Fox seems like he's quite the guy. He praises Captain Aubrey's capture of the Cacafuego, praises it, acknowledging it as a deed only exceeded by the cutting out of the Diane, the most recent exploit. Um, he talks with Dr. Maturin about natural philosophy and Stephen's interests, the appeal of the South China Sea and how many nondescript plants and birds there are there. He mentions his friend Stamford Raffles, Lieutenant Governor of Java, who we're going to come back to on many future occasions in the book. Raffles, a naturalist with really great connections, uh, had assured Fox that the Dutch themselves knew very little of the interior of Java or Sumatra and therefore Stephen, having heard of Raffles and having read letters supplied by Sir Joseph, having seen some of Raffles' specimens and heard his ideas about a, a living museum, but never having met him, I think Stephen feels confident that there's going to be some real interesting discoveries to be made in the botanizing and naturalizing line here. And Fox, still riding high in everybody's estimation here, tells them what a great man Raffles is, how he's full of energy, how he's a great linguist, Again, this is meat and drink for Stephen. Local can, you know, lo local contact who's good with languages. Somebody who'd help Fox with his history of the spread of Mahayana Buddhism and its arrival in Java. Again, this sounds like oh, meat and drink for Stephen. And so far, I think we're thinking, this, what can possibly go wrong here? Well, so Joseph tells Fox that, in fact, that both he and Dr. Matron had attended uh, when Fox read his paper about the spread of Buddhism. And, and Jack had actually gone back and read it in the proceedings. And 
you know, the three of them kind of return Fox's civilities. It's kind of this mutual admiration society going on here. And Fox, we learned, talks intelligently about naval affairs and naval politics, as O'Brien says, as seen from the shore. And then he goes on to mention the surprises, unfortunate voyage in, in which they carried Mr. Stanhope, an envoy, to see another melee sultan. You know, we remember that back from HMS Surprise. And Fox says that that was one of Whitehall's less brilliant ideas, that they would have been much better off leaving it to his department rather than doing it the way they did it here. And he said, you know, Raffles would have dealt with it on the spot and that would have saved Stanhope his weary voyage and his fatal illness. So I think this is the first time we're a little bit kind of, mm, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Um, Anyways. Fox confirms, though, that Stanhope had traveled as, as he says, the king's representative, right? That he would be the king's representative, the crown by proxy, and entitled to a 13-gun salute. So here we go. Okay, here's here's the book's title. Mm. And then Fox goes on saying that, you know, a man entitled to a 13-gun salute has to either be, in his words, a man of great family, you know, this great lineage, or, he says, kind of smiling all around the table, a man of towering parts. And, you know, here is Fox kind of saying, which, of course, is me, right? And so, you know, oops, I, I think our first warning light comes on here in this paragraph here. You know, he's kind of dissing the surprises mission, saying how fabulous he is now. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, and you, you had an interesting thought about Fox here. I love this. Well, he, he's been great so far, but all of a sudden his self-effacement has run out. And I'm reminded of, uh, of a writer called John Kenneth Galbraith. My dad is a big Galbraith fan. And we used to mention this idea of the McClandrous coefficient. There's a book or a series of short stories by Galbraith called the McClandrous dimension. And, um, this guy, Dr. McClandris, uh, embodies this thing called the McClandris coefficient, which is the amount of time in a conversation before you start to talk about yourself. And of course, the shorter your McClandris coefficient, then the more likely it is that you're going to drop a mention of yourself into the conversation. And Fox did a great job. He's, he's laughed at that. Two and a half paragraphs already, not directly talking about himself, but I have a feeling that the shoe is about to drop here. And Fox is going to get into self-aggrandizement and self-publicity. We'll keep track of his McClanders coefficient as we go on. And right, this is also a moment when I start to think again about Stephen. Right, from a distance, without knowing the guy, Stephen was very appreciative of Fox. Oh, he's got this great intellect, and he's well connected, and he's an interesting person. And Stephen is great at regarding people as interesting from a distance, <laughs> but once they're close up. This isn't the first time he discovers that somebody who seems interesting at a distance turns out to be a bit of a pain in the ass when they're up close. And people who are good at a distance, but tricky close up, I wonder if there's a little bit of O'Brien character showing through there. Yeah, maybe. What did what did Jeff Hunt say that, you know, he thought that perhaps O'Brien really wanted to meet you at the other end of a pen? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That was a fabulous quote. Stephen says that Stanhope was an amiable companion. Uh, that the two of them had studied melee together when Stanhope was well enough, uh, but they really didn't make much progress. And and Stephen says this time he hopes to do better. And he's thinking, you know, I'm I'm going to try to find a melee servant from an East Indiaman to help me, you know, learn the language. And Fox says, well, wait a minute, I have a servant Ali, and his cousin Ahmed, you know, is living here with a retired merchant, but is going to be looking for a new position. 
He says, why don't I, I send Ahmed around to, you know, to meet you? And Stephen says, yeah, that'd be great. So Jack now continues the conversation here and asks Mr. Fox about how many people are traveling with him. What's, what's the size of his retinue? What's his entourage? So that Jack can get the carpenters working on his suite. And this is quite a nice indirect way of saying, just, just how big a boy do you think you are there? Um, they both agree that they can't spare a minute getting underway before the monsoons are against them. So to use the Jack Aubrey phrase, there's no time to lose. Well, Fox says, it's okay, I'm going with a secretary. I'm going with a couple of servants. He says he's going to pick up two or three imposing but largely ornamental figures, and I think he means humans, diplomats here, right. from raffles when they stop at Batavia who, along with their servants, will go the rest of the way with them. So this sounds like a manageable size of entourage. And uh, we also learn a little bit about Pulo Prabang. Stephen asks Fox about this place, which, by the way, Mike, I think everybody seems to agree this is a fictitious kingdom or island um, you know, within the, what we currently call Indonesia. Stephen asks Fox about this place, Pulo Prabang, um, having some of the few remains of Buddhism in the Malay territories, because, of course... Malaysia and Indonesia are more or less consistently Muslim parts of the world. Buddhism still has a foothold there. And Fox explains that although, of course, the Sultan is a Mohammedan, a Muslim like most Malays, however, they retain many other pieties, beliefs, superstitions. A slightly dismissive tone, I think, by uh, establishment C of E, Mr. Fox. He says, none of them would ever disturb the Buddhist sanctuary at Kumai. That would be the height of folly, sacrilege, and what is perhaps the point, ill luck forever. And we learn that this sanctuary at Kumai stands by a big volcanic crater that's now a lake. And we learn that Raffles has said that there are orangutan, rhinoceros, and elephants to be seen there. Oh, and Stephen is pleased. And Mike, I think so are we. I didn't really pay much attention to this little foreshadowing of Kumai when I first read the books. But now, being on my umpteenth circumnavigation and knowing the delights that await us here, with apologies for a slight spoiler, I really enjoy that they've just dropped this in here for me to start drooling with anticipation at what Stephen's going to find and see and experience at Kumai. Yeah, and I'm, it's, it's funny because I remember even the first time going through, you know, I had a concentration in Buddhism as an undergraduate. And so I was like, Oh my gosh, Hinayana, Mahayana, oh, I can't wait. So yeah. I, was, I was looking forward to this here. Well, Stephen takes us one further, as long as they're talking about you know, their destination here. Stephen asks if Cornelius Van Buren, the naturalist, the anatomist, the authority on the spleen, is, is still there, retired in Pulaprabang. And Fox doesn't know, but he's sure Raffles will be able to tell us what happened to him. Now, mm. yet I think both you and I saw this name and, and this so specific description and everything and thought, well, that's got to be a real person. But we've kind of worn ourselves out trying to find him. <laughs> yeah. And, and shout out to the listeners. If you think Cornelius Van Buren, perhaps with a different name, is a real person, let us know. We've certainly found examples of real Dutch 18th century um, natural philosophers who were into comparative anatomy. We've certainly found evidence of Dutch... 18th century natural philosophers who were present in the Indonesian colonies and Batavia in particular, we haven't found any that have a name similar to Cornelius Van Buren and who were both, you know, Batavian naturalists and comparative anatomists. So if you can help us in, find the intersection, that would be great. Otherwise, I think all of this, this digging says 
O'Brien did a good job coming up with a plausible but clearly fictitious profile for this anatomist, Van Buren, who we're going to hear about later in the story. Yes. Well, you know, from anatomist, they move on to talking about the people, the men specifically, who provide anatomists with what they call their raw material, such as resurrection men, hangman's assistants, Thames watermen. And, and I, I don't know if resurrection men is a new one. Ian, you, you said that you guys had studied this in school, you know, a, along with all the great events of history. Huh? Well, yeah, it's funny. Maybe I'm the only British person who I can remember as a pretty sure as a primary school kid learning about Burke and Hare, the grave robbers, and how it was a thing for people to rob graves for anatomy experiments. I don't know why we would have learned that alongside the wives of King Henry VIII, but it, it sticks in my memory. Or maybe, maybe it was just me. I don't know. Well, it, it's funny for me, there's another author, C.S. Harris, and she writes a, a, a big series of books about a Viscount Sebastian St. Cyr in the Regency era. So we're, yeah. we're kind of very much along the same time. And one of Sebastian's friends is a surgeon, if you will, an 1800s medical examiner, an anatomist who kind of helps him you know, solve murders. But uh, the resurrection men play prominently in these books as well, or we see them a lot here. And and I, I was fascinated. I kind of, you know, I had never seen it before. I went back and I found out that, in fact, C.S. Harris, among many other things, uh, at, at one point had been a grave removal specialist for an ancient burial site. So I can kind of see how she comes to it naturally here. So if, if there's there's about 17 novels, if you want some mystery and a little romance during the Regency, her stuff that starts with What Angels Fear and runs, I think, her last one, When uh, when Blood Lies. is So she's been for 2005 to 2022 and, and writing away strong. Well, they move on from the Resurrection Men to, to kind of talking about villains in general and then traitors in specific. And finally, they get to Ledward, who you know, they're going to see here. And Fox completely changes. He passionately hates Ledward. He speaks very grossly about him. He turns pale and he doesn't eat anything else for the rest of the meal until after the cloth is drawn when the subject changes. And, and after some more talk over wine, um, they invite Fox to go along with him to a concert of ancient music. So Joseph and Jack and Stephen are happily headed to this thing. And Fox says that he can't tell one note from another thanks them for their excellent dinner and their company and and you know says you know i i, I won't go and so hmm, not into music ah mm. second warning light here in canon yeah. speak i don't know not into music this gives me pause yeah it does or oh, maybe this is a good time for us to take a pause as, as we hear the notes of michael turner's waltz coming in the background let's let's grab a break listen to some ancient music and we'll be right back after this late but very short break If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. We hope you had a great break. I hope you're restored and refreshed. While Jack is talking with a friend now, immediately after this uh, conversation with Fox at dinner. Stephen turns to Blaine and asks if there's any hierarchy or relative rank between him, Stephen, and Fox. I might maybe this is the third warning light. Like Stephen's antennae are twitching. That am I going to be accountable to this character in some way? Is he going to have any kind of hierarchical hold over me? 
And Sir Joseph says, there is none, merely, wonderful 18th century phrase, a consultative nexus. Fox might ask Stephen for advice in case of difficulties, but is no more obliged to follow it than Stephen is obliged to follow recommendations from Fox. So they're there to sort of help each other out. Fox is there to negotiate the treaty. Stephen's there to observe the French. They have parallel objectives, very well articulated by Sir Joseph Blaine. Mike, I'm not 100% sure the stakeholder picture is as clear for Stephen as, uh, as Sir Joseph Blaine, which is it might be. Anyhow, Stephen is in the position then to communicate any intelligence that he thinks will help Fox in the negotiations. And I just wonder how close Fox is going to get to counting on Stephen, and I just wonder how close he's going to get to believing that Stephen's accountable to him. We're going to have to see here. Right. Anyhow, in the morning, Jack tells Stephen, we have another name to put in the frame here. Our former midshipman, Spotted Dick Richardson, Spotted Dick, known for his pimples, um, he was a character in the Mauritius Command. He'd been the Admiral's flag lieutenant in reverse of the medal for an Admiral named Pellew. Um, in this book, it's remembered as Pello, and I think that might even be a typo. Right, I think so too. Yeah, because Pello was a real Admiral. So this guy, Spotted Dick, who is apparently now less pimpled than before, is going to be joining them as third lieutenant to replace Dixon. Muffet, of sacred memory, the captain of the Indiaman Lushington, the commodore of the fleet that Jack protected from Linois, has offered to share what he knows from his many voyages in the South China Sea. So again, we've got reflections back. We've had Master and Commander. We're going to have Mauritius Command and also HMS Surprise coming here. And Jack then asks Stephen what he thought of Fox. And here, Mike, Stephen rolls up all of these reservations that we've all got about Fox. He says, a good impression which didn't last as well as it could. He had too many compliments, he says. Wished us to love him. McClanderous coefficient close to zero. Talked too much. Perhaps, says Stephen, perhaps too accommodatingly, he was nervous. However, Joseph does rate his abilities very high. Stephen liked the way he talked about Raffles, but then notes very wisely that some men try to dominate a conversation from the beginning, at least after the civilities. And I love this line from Stephen. Dr. Johnson, says Stephen, had said that every meeting or every conversation was a contest in which the man of superior parts was the victor. But, says Stephen, I think he was mistaken. For that is surely wrangling or hostile debate, often self-defeating. It is not conversation as I understand it at all. A calm, amicable interchange of opinions, news, information, reflections, without any striving for superiority. And Stephen finally says, I particularly noticed that Sir Joseph, indulging in his several of his masterly flashes of silence, rather prolonged flashes, remained quite obviously the most considerable man among us. Great. Great. Write that on a mug. I'll have several dozen printed off. There's there's an old saying in journalism, Mike, um, they who know often don't speak, and those who speak often don't know. And I think that's one of the things that uh, Stephen's telling us here. It's interesting. It's it's also a saying from a great Zen master. (laughs) Ah, there you go. Ah, that's great. What Jack says, you know, he's now heard Stephen's opinion of Fox. And he says, you know, I would have thought Fox was a great man years ago. But now, as in Jack's words, a cantankerous old dog rather than a friendly young one. 
He's not, by the way, just, just to interject on behalf of old dogs, not that you have to become cantankerous when you become an old dog, but as we both know, Mike, you know, it's a, sometimes it's an option that's obviously laid out for you there. <laughs> right. It's, it's certainly easy. That's for sure. <laughs> that's right. And, and, and now, as, you know, as an old dog, he's going to wait to get to know him better before he makes up his mind. And, mm. and we clearly are getting, you know, a lot of these references to an older, wiser Jack here. And I think we'll continue to see those here. He tells Stephen, you know, Stephen, you didn't hear us talking about accommodation. Stephen was talking to Sir Joseph at the time. And, and he's saying, you know, Fox has the same ideas of Stanhope about an envoy's importance, you know, being the direct representative of the crown. And, you know, he wants to mess separately. You know, he's not going to eat with us except on particular invitations. So it's like, you know, we can't invade his space. He's not going to be in our space. And Jack asked Stephen, thinking about that now, how Stephen would like to travel. He's remembering that mm. thing. You know, you want to be the surgeon. You want to be the envoy surgeon. And Stephen says, oh, my gosh, you know, absolutely. As your guest, you know, the simplest way. And, and that's perfect. That works out. Well, Jack says, I'm about to head off and get a new uniform made. And, you know, what? You could actually use a new coat. Why don't you come with me? And uh, <laughs> Stephen, you know, says, ah, well, Actually, I'm going to go help with an operation, but why don't we get back together this evening? And if we can get Sir Joseph's box, let's go see the opera. Like Amenta de Tito is playing tonight. Ah, wow. It, it wouldn't be O'Brien without a reference to some 18th century music and to Mozart, right? And to an opera by Mozart. Interesting little, well, I don't think it's a major Easter egg, but it's an interesting one to mention. My uh, Clemenza di Tito very, very late in Mozart's life, written in the last year of his life. The opera itself was a bit of a political football. It was commissioned for the coronation of Leopold II, Holy Roman Emperor, for his coronation as King of Bohemia. And there was a there was a deal here going on to, to free Bohemian serfs, pacify the Bohemian nobility, strengthen the empire, and the opera was supposed to have this theme of promoting the political and social polities of, of, of an aristocratic elite. It's about a Roman ruler, Tito. It turns out that they were quite late in coming to the idea of getting this opera composed. They were very, very short of time. Many other composers and versions of it, Mozart's arch rival Salieri turned it down. In the end, Mozart composed it in 18 days, got paid double the going rate for Vienna. So great work, Wolfgang. And the, the, the plot contains some interesting features of a failed assassination attempt and betrayal and political maneuvering. So besides being nicely contemporary for the later stages of Mozart's life, maybe there's a bit of foreshadowing for us here if we want to look for it. It, it is interesting. And I think Stephen would particularly love it, 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 knowing the history behind it, because, you know, as you say, you know, Leopold II is going to become king of Bohemia. By his becoming king, He's wiping away all the stuff that his brother Joseph II, who was going to be king, you know, yeah. you know, was going to free the serfs and you know, reduce the taxation, and he was getting the nobles all really mad. And now Leopold II is like, I'm all cool with the nobles. You know, we're going to keep, we're going to promote the aristocracy, not the you know all the the populace and the civilians. So Stephen would have been very keen on this, and like you say, you know, maybe some foreshadowing here, and definitely kind of an interesting irony that the play, as you say, doesn't seem to promote the aristocracy much at all, other than 
for this great aristocrat to be so merciful, which Joseph clearly is not doing here. So no. Maybe maybe it's a little bit of a, of a poke in the eye. Who knows? Right. So, you know, we're back at the grapes. Stephen has had a very trying operation. They couldn't gag the patient. <laughs> so he was very vocal during the thing, which wore Stephen out. He, he got tired of that. And, and Stephen is looking at Van Buren's latest essay, you know, in one of the journals. It's on primate spleens. And he's happy to see that it's dated from Pulo Prabang. So, okay, Van Buren still is there. And now... He's looking through all of his old diaries, the ones that you know have, have been preserved uh, there in the grapes, and he finds the one from the first year that he met Jack. And, and now he's reading through this, and Stephen's thinking about himself, and he's kind of stunned uh, about how he was at that time. He says, no feelings at all but sorrow, and even that, even that sorrow, a dull gray, music the only living thing. So, wow. wow. You know, oh, you know, it's not only so consistent with the canon, but Stephen kind of looking back going, wow. And this, I think this is exactly the same influence that, you know, going back in my journals has for me. Wow. Wow. You know, kind of seeing the depth of where you were and what you're doing. Well, you know, as he reads through these, though, he's thinking to himself, you know, that he really doesn't believe he's changed much from the man who wrote this, that rather than kind of changing over time or evolving, he really has just kind of gotten back to the guy he was before this time when, when that huge set of blows about the rising and Mona had been taken. However, he reflects, Jack has most certainly changed. And, you know, the text says, for even the most prescient eye could scarcely have seen the present Captain Aubrey in the willful indeed wanton, undisciplined jack of those days, somewhat profligate and so impatient of restraint. Yeah. Oh boy, he's <laughs> painting quite the picture, as we remember, of Jack back then and Jack now. Wow, big difference here. And, and he goes on, and really helpful for us here as readers, repaints the picture of Stephen himself and his career in naval intelligence. Now, We've all been wondering, I think, when this began. Was he already a naval intelligence agent during Master and Commander? Did it really emerge only later, like we read about in Post Captain? And here it is kind of laid out for us. The answer, like always with, uh, with O'Brien, is ambiguous. It's a definitive maybe as to whether Stephen was an intelligence agent early on. We read that he had met this guy, John Somerville, from a family of Barcelona merchants, a member of the Hermandad, the Catalan Brotherhood, struggling against Castilian oppression. That in those days, the French armies had burned Montserrat, tying in with the place where Blaine had stayed in Lisbon, had ravaged towns and farms and destroyed and raped and murdered. The Castilians had then deserted their English allies and in 1797 had joined the French. But the Hermandad, this brotherhood, uh, this Catalan brotherhood, had refused. And that, we read, that was the point where Stephen realised that Europe's only hope was an English victory and a victory that must be won at sea. Irish independence, Catalan autonomy, two causes, of, out of any causes, the only ones dear to Stephen's heart, could not come about without an English naval victory at sea. And Stephen gives us a, a location for this in time. He writes about his connection with Somerville after his early days in the Sophie, and with Somerville's chief, one of Blaine's best agents until his horrible death in France. 
And Mike, I think this this uncertainty lies then with whereabouts in the days after Master and Commander was it? Was it during or before the time of Post Captain? Maybe it was in the gap that came between HMS Surprise and Mauritius Command. There was a large number of years of real historical timeline kind of left fallow there. But again, who knows? Stephen is appalled as he goes back through his diary at how much confidential information he's written there, even though it's in a code that's never been broken. He thinks to himself, I'm much more careful now. The text says, what insane risks he ran before he came to understand the true nature of intelligence. So there's clearly been this growth, this emergence of Stephen's capabilities as well as his role in intelligence. It's a really interesting paragraph. To, to borrow a phrase from, from the movies, he's retconning. He's retroactively offering us continuity of the story of the evolution of Stephen's character. And uh, it's, it's really good fun. And it's nice to know that it's there to help us place what was happening after Master and Commander. I think we're, we're all delighted to get that look back. And, and you know, I, I know it's, it's so many conversations throughout the years about, so when did Stephen first become an intelligence agent? And at least we have a little bit here. Well, we're right in the middle of that when Lucy interrupts, you know, knocks on Stephen's door, interrupts him to tell him that there is a black man with a letter here to see him. And, and O'Brien tells us that in this part of London at that time, you didn't see a lot of black men. Yeah. And, and it turns out it's Fox's Ahmed. And, oh. uh, you know, and O'Brien notes that he actually is not a black man. He has a moderate brownish yellow face, but his teeth are completely black from chewing beetle. Huh. <laughs> and I'm thinking beetle, beetle. Well, it turns out absolutely real thing here. This is the leaf of an Asian evergreen. It's, it's a climbing plant. It's used as a mild stimulant. So this, this is a guy Stephen could get along with here. And you know, <laughs> that apparently they take this leaf, they wrap it around a mixture of a, of a local nut there and some cinnamon and lime, and it causes your saliva to go very red and over time, in fact, does blacken the teeth completely. Wow. Well. Ahmed is standing there. He has a note from Fox. He has a testimonial from his current employer who said that Ahmed's been wonderful and is great. England's probably a little cold for him. And she's sadly obliged to reduce her household. And Stephen, very efficient. <laughs> Stephen, you know, asks about his English. And he says, you know, I can speak a little, but I understand more. And he says, great. When can you start? <laughs> and then you know, explains the wages, tells him to come tomorrow and ask if he needs any help with his chest. Ahmed, you know, kind of is backing very ceremoniously down the stairs, smiling, happy as he can be, says, you know, he's got the chest all handled. And Stephen goes off thinking, I better start smoothing things over with Killick and Mrs. Broad. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and he's thinking about these two. He says, he is likely to grow more shrewish than usual, and she is certainly to think of human sacrifices and humans running amok. A difficult interview, I foresee. So Stephen, sounding a little Yoda-ish, yeah. <laughs> is, is, you know, mm. here. Now, I, I love this. Ian, you pointed out to me that this running amok, uh, this is this is kind of uh, very, very appropriate here, right? Yeah, it's, it, it's a pretty commonplace phrase to decide somebody going a little crazy. Running amok actually has its origins in the Malay word mangamak, which means to make a furious and desperate charge. So the word itself is of Malay origin. Maybe it was accident that it just got dropped in there. Maybe it was deliberate. Who knows? Anyhow, ultimately, 
Mrs. Broad and Lucy and Nancy find Ahmed to be much easier than Killick ashore. He's always clean, sober, meek, and obliging. And when they finally come to part ways with him, they shake his hand, wish him a prosperous voyage and a happy return. They say they would be pleased to see him again. I'm like, I, I think I feel the same about Ahmed here. He's, he's a nice guy. I like his low-key manner. I like the fact that he's, you know, an, an outsider. He's different as well. Reminds me of Mr. Harabedian, who I liked as well. So I'm sitting here thinking, I sure hope that Ahmed doesn't get eaten by a shark. <sighs> so fingers crossed here. Right. For sure. Oh, my gosh. So things are moving along here. Remember, we said there was not a moment to lose. Jack and Stephen had left earlier in a post chase. As they're riding along, Jack remembers how much Pullings had liked to ride in one. And musing on that, they decide that the surprise under his command must by now be somewhere near Cape San Roque. Uh, by the way, Mike, Cape San Roque is on the coast of Brazil. It's where they had all gone ashore in HMS Surprise, in the novel HMS Surprise. That was the place where Stephen had gone ashore and brought back a sloth. And we know how much we love sloths in the O'Brien canon. It's also close to St. Paul's Rocks, where Stephen was nearly lost uh, and uh, had been stranded. Another little backward glance here to the beginning of the canon. But back on Stephen and Jack's journey, Jack is happy to have Admiralty orders. And that has a particular importance for Jack, right, as a prize-taking captain. Yeah, yeah. Having Admiralty orders means that there's no admiral, if he'd been given orders by an admiral rather than the Admiralty, the Admiral would get one third of the prize money. So this is great. He loves that. So he's got these orders. He's got extracts from Muffet's last 25 years of logs on the South China Seas. He's got charts, notes on typhoons, currents, variations from the compass, and when the monsoon had set in in each of those years. Unfortunately, even though it's 25 years worth of information, it's always on exactly the same course because those waters are very shallow. They've got volcanoes, so there can be very sudden and unexpected shoals arising. So the Indian men had always followed the same course here. Now, also, Jack's explaining to Stephen that the Indian men usually stopped at night. One, because it was very easy to lie to or anchor there in those shallow waters. And two, because of these unexpected shoals and, and that. So... Stephen thinks, you know, that's a really sensible precaution. And Jack says, yeah, but it doesn't work if you're in a hurry like we are. Uh, and Jack explains it as only Jack can. He says, it is no good carrying your pig to market and finding, says he paused, frowning. Stephen says, it will not drink, <laughs> like leading a horse to water. Jack says, no, no, it ain't. It ain't that neither. Stephen says, there are no pokes to be had. Oh, says Jack, well, be damned to literary airs and graces. <laughs> and finally, he says, basically, there's no use racing there, only to stop every night once you pass Java Head. And at that, Jack kind of looks around, falls asleep, you know, you know, as commenting that he's been tired of all this running around London. <laughs> I love the Aubreyisms. I love Jack, you know, a little frustrated in his own Aubreyisms. And then just like, okay, you know what? Yeah. I'm just going to sleep. Scratch all that. <laughs> now, we know that Jack can sleep pretty much anywhere. They're in the coach and they're on their way to Ashgrove. Jack, of course, is awake before they reach Ashgrove. He's really happy to see things growing. That hasn't always been happily the case for Jack whenever he's gone back to Ashgrove. This time, everything in the garden 
agriculturally wise, is growing. His family's waiting for him in front of the house. They're all right there. Even so, Sophie looks upset. And might we get this touching but oddly placed little episode between Jack and his half-brother, Philip. This is the boy who's the son of Jack's late father and the milkmaid Jack's stepmother. Philip had run away from school, we learned, to get away to go to sea with Jack. And clearly he's found his way back home again and he's not looking in great shape. Jack calls Philip over and says, I'm really glad to see you. And Philip, in a trembling voice, wishes, wishes Jack joy of his success. And Jack says he hates to disappoint him, but I can't take my brother as a youngster in a new command. You wouldn't know the people and they wouldn't know him as th their new captain. So Philip, therefore, will be looked on and treated as a favourite, and that's not okay. Jack explains to Philip that Henage Dundas has got plenty of boys Philip's age on his ship. It's the Orion. He's promised to take Philip next year, and he just sort of soothes things over. And it's, it's kind of a little bit strange here, Mike. This episode doesn't seem to have any connection, doesn't raise any questions or create any tension that has to get resolved later on. I don't even know why it's here, except maybe, again, it's as a bit of exposition for people who are jumping in at this book for the first time to think, oh, yeah, Jack has his half-brother, Philip, and he's young, and he's waiting on finding his own way into the Navy here. <sighs> well, Jack's wasting no time at home trying to get ready to get underway. He writes to the commissioner there at the port, and he wants to get work started on the secret treasure compartments where they hope to stock more gold than the French are going to be able to offer, and he invites Captain Bushel, the current captain of the Diane, over for dinner at Ashgrove. You know, and he's really kind of hoping to make this supersession a little less painful. However, Bushel replies that he has a previous engagement and tells Jack that Jack should come aboard tomorrow at 3.30 so that Bushel can introduce his officers and leave before Jack is read in. You know, this is kind of, I'm thinking, whoa, it's a little abrupt here. But yeah. O'Brien tells us Jack, you know, he gets that. He reads it, but he's really absorbed in playing games with the kids. Uh, he's playing speculation. And, and I love this because speculation is in both Jane Austen's work. It's in Charles Dickens' works here. You know, a, a, a definitely a card game that Hoyle prints the first instructions for, the first rules for in 1800. Mm. So, you know, very period, period. And, and Jack is, you know, kind of thinking about, how to undermine his son in this game. <laughs> but then as, as the game's sort of progressing, he starts thinking, well, wait a minute. Bushel must be quite a pitiful fellow to be so resentful. You know, he didn't send his thanks or his compliment. He didn't offer Jack the option to set his own date and time. Jack is several years you know, senior to Bushel on the list. And finally, Jack says the failure to offer a boat to take him out was shabby in the extreme. You know, he's thinking even if supersession is a most disagreeable process justifying a high degree of resentment, there are just some common courtesies you don't leave off here. But Jack's so happy to be back in the Navy, back commanding a ship. O'Brien writes that Jack would do anything short of slaughtering Sophie and the children to be back in this place again. But Jack is thinking to himself, but I'm not there yet. He's really thinking, you know, I'm not really there until I'm read in. And as O'Brien writes, that would pass the ring and marry him to the Navy once more. 
Wow. Yeah, he yeah. wants to say the I do's here. Right? He yeah. does. And it raises this last little question close to the end of the chapter here. Are, are we actually going to get to that point? Is this going to be undercut somehow? So Jack and Stephen and Diane and Sophie drive down in Diana's coach with Killick and Bondon up behind. They're planning, after Jack's reading in, to sit down and eat dinner at the Crown and the women are going to tour the ship. The commissioner, the naval commissioner, is happy to get started with the secret carpentry that's going to go on in the ship to conceal you know, hidden supplies. He wants to get that done even before the paperwork arrives from London. The commissioner offers Jack his barge to go across. So Jack has Bondon pull around the Diane. He takes a good look. He's looking in quite good shape. He must have a good first lieutenant. Jack goes up the larboard side so he doesn't have to have a ceremonial entrance aboard. Doesn't want to have Bondon call out Diane, meaning I have the captain here with you, while Diane's current nominal captain is still aboard. So Jack's being quite, you know, polite and tolerant, I think. Jack gets aboard, salutes the quarterdeck. Nice moment. Every hat comes off in reply simultaneously as Jack introduces himself and offers Bushel his hand. I'm like, it, it, it's funny, but it paints Bushel into the box here of being a very inconsequential character when O'Brien just says, Bushel gave him a limp hand. A mechanical smile and a look of hatred. Right. And names the officers. He names Lieutenant Fielding, Lieutenant Elliot, not Richardson yet because he hasn't arrived aboard ship. He names the Marine Officer Welby, the Master Warren, Graham the Surgeon, and the Purser Blythe. The midshipmen, being squeakers of no use to man or beast, are not introduced. Bushel then calls for his barge, and there's a farewell ceremony as he goes over the side. There are no cheers. And we, we get told here how to judge Bushel by the ship's company. The Dianes, it says, were only staring heavily, some chewing on their quids, others open-mouthed, all completely indifferent. When the barge gets far enough away, Jack asks First Lieutenant, Lieutenant Fielding, to call all hands aft and read the orders that Jack hands to him. The crew comes aft. Jack goes almost to the taffrail, looking down at this strangely familiar quarter deck, which he had last seen flowing with blood, some of it his own. Fielding cries, off hats! And Mike, little, little glow in the heart there at that order, off hats. Right. And starts reading the familiar orders we've heard so many times in the canon, ending with, hereof nor you nor any of you may fail, as you will answer the contrary at your peril. And for so doing, this shall be your warrant given under our hands and the seal of the Office of Admiralty on this 15th day of May in the 53rd year of His Majesty's reign. Here endeth chapter four. Right. So am I, am I, by, by the way, surely entirely deliberate, little link back to a real world timeline here. This means that we are in May 1813. That's where we are, 53rd year of the reign of King George III. And Mike, now, now we're underway, right? We are, and, and it's great. You know, we, we, you know, the story is really moving. It's not the story we thought we'd have. We're not, you know, immediately on to the South American mission, but you know, we've got a new story underway, a different story, not all the exposition and character background of the first two chapters, but this story with the reinstated Captain Jack Aubrey in command yeah. of a Royal Navy ship headed to the South China Sea, you know, ultimately still going to South America, but right now we've got this South China Sea ahead of us coming face to face with Ledward Ray and another French frigate meeting them in the Diane, this new French frigate that was created by France for this very same mission to South America that was cut out by Jack. So 
we're on our way to frustrate French ambitions in a treacherous place with some great wonders of nature and Eastern intrigue awaiting Stephen, Jack, and all of us. Wow. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, you and I have talked about this. When you look back at this point, we're thinking chapters one and two of this book were a little bit of a disappointment, a bit of a letdown. Chapters three and now also chapter four. We're back on home territory. It was great that we got to spend a little bit more time, much better quality time, I think, with the, with the characters, with Blaine, with Fox, and with the family um, before we left. So, Mike, we're, we're back underway here. We've had so many looks back. I wonder how much more we're going to get. I wonder how many more references we're going to get to the early voyages in HMS Surprise. Uh, are we going to get storms? Are we going to get sea snakes? Are we going to get oppressive tropical heat? Are we going to get exotic cities and cultures are we going to get duels and and fox's character is he going to go on now being how he seems to be or is he going to redeem himself is he going to be how stephen hoped all along that he would be like i i can't wait well i think there's only one way to find out what do you say in next week to a little bit more patrick o'brien ah with all my heart from Muppet's last 25 years of logs on the South China Cheat. <laughs> South China there you go, Sam. Boy, there have been a multitude of uh, outtakes there. Let's try that again. South China Sea.